Well, one more time. Merry Christmas. I'm excited about that. <clears throat> we are still journeying through the New Testament. Um, and this week, uh, we're going to cover the book of James. Uh, I need to preface by saying all the letters that were written in the New Testament were written for a reason. Um, they were written to a certain group of people. They were written to address a, a certain issue. Um, some people were suffering, and so they wrote letters to encourage. Some people were, most people were sinning, and so most of the letters were written to um, correct. Um, but all of the letters in the, in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we call them books, all the books, were all written for our instruction and to give us a hope. And so James... Um, predominantly uh, is it's a little different than most of the letters that you read. Um, James is not writing to a specific town, so to say, like most of Paul's letters are, which is what we name them. Romans, he wrote to the, to the Christians in Rome. Corinthians, he wrote to the Christians in Corinth, and so forth. Um, James wrote to all the dispersed Jews. Um, there was an immense persecution of Christians when they first began to follow Christ, especially from the Jewish community because it was the Jewish leaders who felt that Jesus was not the Messiah and the teaching that we should worship Jesus as the Messiah um, to them was heresy. And so there was a, a, an intense persecution. Um, and so many of them, as we read in Acts, uh, were dispersed. All but the apostles were dispersed. Um, and so James wrote a letter to just be distributed throughout all the regions um, to all the dispersed Christians. Um, and so he writes some things he writes to encourage and some things he writes to correct. Um, but you may not realize how familiar you are with the book of James. And that's why we're going to run through a few uh, verses, many verses real quick. I'm not going to talk about the first section. I'm just going to read them to you, and you tell me if it rings a bell. Um, many of the things that you have heard actually are little, um, little sayings um, that James wrote that were very useful and very almost catchy, I guess you could say. Um, they're very practical, and uh, so many of the things we get from James. Um, some of these things you're going to be familiar with, some, some you may not be. But I just figured I'd throw what I felt was the most commonly known verses real quick. Uh, and then maybe it'll encourage you to say, hey, I think I'll go home and read James. It's only five chapters. It's not a very long book. James 1, 2, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Sound familiar? James said that too, and we need to keep in mind, too, brothers and sisters in Christ who were undergoing different trials and, and who were being persecuted. And James was telling them to consider it actually a joy. Jesus was persecuted, and he told us that blessed are those who are persecuted. James 1.5, he says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. You may not know it as ungrudgingly, depending on your translation. Um, but it says, any who lacks wisdom, ask God who, who wants to give it to you. Not like, not like as we may imagine, it's like, ah, leave me alone, leave me alone. No, he desires to give you wisdom. And what is biblical wisdom? Biblical wisdom is not knowing 
physics and calculus and, and, and these things. Biblical wisdom is knowing right from wrong. Um, it's knowing, if you read the Proverbs, and wisdom is knowing what is good, what is evil, what does God desire. Um, let's, let's go on. <clears throat> James 1.13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God does not ever tempt anyone to do evil. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. All good things come from God. James 1.19, my, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We've never heard that one, have we? We should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And you know it as your common, common phrase. That's why God gave you two ears and one mouth, because we're supposed to listen twice as much as we speak. James said in 122, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And we're going to come back to, to that. James 127 he said, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder or they tremble, as you may know it. This is where we get this from. James said this. Even the demons believe the truth about God and they tremble in fear. The difference is they haven't submitted themselves. They didn't submit themselves to God. James 2.26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You may be familiar from this one just because you come to this church, uh, I don't know if the general populace is very familiar with this verse, but I know I've quoted, quoted it a lot. <clears throat> James 4, 2 and 3 says, you do, and I'm going to skip to the end. It says, because this, this is the part you're probably familiar with, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on to say, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So what do you spend wealth right so in context honestly i'm not a i'm not a health and wealth gospel preacher i'm not one to get up here and say god wants you to be wealthy but what i am saying is in context that is actually in context appropriate for what he's saying you don't have because you don't ask in context it really does mean you don't have or can mean you don't have wealth because you don't ask for wealth but then he goes on to say but, and this is, this is where the, difference, the major difference comes in, he says, or you've asked, and you ha but you haven't received because you plan to spend that on your own selfish pleasures. And in that case, God doesn't want you to be wealthy. He doesn't want you to be wealthy if you're just going to be greedy. That, that's, that's the opposite of what he wants. <clears throat> James 4, 7, and 8. I know everybody knows this one. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
See how many of these things we get from this very short book of James? And he goes on to say in the next verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4, 14 and 15. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And you say, when do we get into that habit of saying, God willing? (laughs) Well, James was saying it. That's what he taught us to say. He says, if you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, you say, and he rebuked him, he says, you say, tomorrow I will go to this town and do this business and and do this stuff. Like this is, I'm planning my life. I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. He said, no, 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 you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, I will go and do this and that. We must live in the moment. We must realize that our life is short. We must realize that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Here's another one. I'm sure you've heard it. Most people don't like to think about it. James 4, 17, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. This is where we get that concept of sin by commission and sin by omission. Sin by commission means you committed a sin. You did something wrong. Sin by omission means you knew the right thing to do and you did nothing. And James says that's sin as well. And once you start realizing how big a spectrum that is, you realize we can't go a day without sinning, honestly. I mean, sin, we cannot not sin. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. James 5, 16, we're in the last chapter. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You familiar with this? The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And he's, he's encouraging to believe the believers to confess their sins to each other and pray for each other to be healed. Now, this gets into a topic we will not talk about today, but this is in the topic of discipline by God. And so what it is, is we read in 1 Corinthians and in James and in 1 John, we read that sickness and illness was a form and is, I believe, I don't believe anything's changed is a form that God uses to discipline his children who sin to cause them to wake up and to stop committing that sin. Um, This was one of the ways that God would use. And so what is the natural thing from that? Now, obviously, it doesn't mean every sickness is because you've sinned. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus taught very clearly that people were not born blind because they sinned or their parents sinned. Every sickness and disease and everything is not because, oh, you sinned or, oh, you don't have enough faith. I'm not going to get up here and teach that because I believe it's absolutely not true biblically. But I'm not going to deny the reality on the other side that God does use sickness to get his children who are living in sin to wake up and stop sinning. Um, of course, we can, we can do another sermon or series on that, and I think that's something that all Christians should know because I think, personally, when we become ill and sick, the first thing we should do is ask God, is this discipline, am I sinning, reveal to me through the Holy Spirit what I'm doing wrong. And if you pray that prayer, and it is a form of discipline, the Holy Spirit will tell you, this is what you need to stop doing. He will tell you because that's the whole point. And then if you confess your sins and pray and God will forgive you, 
the illness will go away when you, and you'll repent of that sin. So I know that's a, I just dropped a bomb on everybody, but, but that's a very biblical concept that I think we need to understand because we live in a modern medicine era in which every time we get sick, the last thing, if ever, if we ever even ask, is this a form of discipline by God to get me to turn from sin? We never even ask ourselves, are we sinning? Is there some sin I need to turn from? And that's not biblical at all. We need to be asking ourselves these questions. Um, James five nineteen through 20. And this is the same, the same thing about praying, confessing our sins to each other and, and, and praying and to the elders and, and being prayed for to be healed. He wraps that up with, my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that concept. All right. Well, before we jump into the main portion of the scripture, I just want to start off by saying, because we are doing James chapter 2, and we just did Galatians last week, and I don't want to confuse anybody. I do want to make sure that you understand that I believe and teach and want you to believe and understand that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Let's say that together. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Okay? That is biblical. That is true. But what you're going to see is that's the truth, and it's right here. And you know what happens with all truth? People can go this way, way away from the truth, and people can go this way, way away from the truth. Which means, usually, when you have a view that seems way out here and a view that seems way out here, usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. It doesn't mean we're compromising between the person that holds this view and compromising between the, the person that holds this view. It's just typically the truth is in the middle because we started from the truth and then we moved out here and we moved out here. Therefore, where is the truth? It's right back in the middle. Paul had to talk and wrote a lot of his letters addressing people that were way out here who believed that you are justified by works, that you actually earned right standing before God by works. James had to talk to a people that was way out here who said that you're justified by faith absent from works, that works doesn't have to exist. There doesn't have to be any sign of works, that knowledge alone is all you need. And so the truth was in the middle. People went both directions. And so Paul's addressed one group of people. James address, addresses the, the other problem that he sees. That's, but that's why I wanted y'all to know the truth before we start talking about the error. Paul said to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he said, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. This is where we get that. You're saved by grace, God's grace, through your faith, not from works. And of course, last week we went through Galatians and we spent a lot of time on this concept of not being justified by God, before God by works, but instead in faith in Jesus Christ. You were here this, if you were here this past week, you remember we, we harped on this. Here is um, verse 16 
a reminder of what we learned last week. Paul said, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Jesus Christ. So he's saying people who believe they can be justified through works, he says, we know that's not true. You can't be justified through works. But instead, you're only justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we ourselves have placed our faith and believe in Jesus Christ to be justified. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, how many people will be justified? How many people will be justified by the works of the law? None. So Paul is addressing people who believe they can be justified by works, right? And he's saying, nope, you can't be justified by works. You're justified by faith. So that's the group he was addressing. People who predominantly were most likely Jewish. And what we read, you remember what his big thing was? He kept talking about those who were getting circumcised because that's the entering into the Mosaic Covenant. But we're under a new covenant. We're under, that's what the New Testament is. You know, it's the Old Testament, New Testament. You know, that's technically Old Covenant, New Covenant. That's what that is. That word, Testament, is covenant. So it's Old Covenant, New Covenant. Jesus said, I've established a new covenant in my blood. We're under a new covenant. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore. And so Paul was preaching against those who were telling new Christians, who were placing their faith in Christ, now you have to enter into the Mosaic Covenant. And Paul said, no, you don't. You don't under a, you're under a new covenant with Christ. You don't enter into the old covenant. You don't try to earn justification through works of the law, through the obedience to the old covenant. So, why am I spending so much time on this? Because, honestly, this was a big problem in the first century, in Paul's day, in, in James's day. This was a big problem to get these things straight in everyone's mind of how are we saved and how do we stay saved. And it's no less a problem today. I think it's just as much a problem today as it always has been. That's why I feel that we, as the church, need to have a good grasp on what does this mean. How are we saved? What does it mean to be saved? Because what else is more important? Nothing. There's nothing else more important right now than knowing what it means to be saved, what God has said about being saved, how to be saved. So, I believe, take it for what you may, I believe this idea that James was addressing was predominantly come about from people who took Paul's teachings and went way left with them. Okay, because Paul is teaching we're saved by faith, not by works. But we all understand that, right? You can't be made right before God by works. You, you're only made right before God by faith in his son and his sacrifice. But what they did was they did. They took that concept of being saved by faith and not by works that Paul had taught. And then they ran all the way out here to the side with it and said, well, then I can do anything I want and I can sin in any way I want because obedience to what God has commanded us to do doesn't matter to my salvation. 
Because if not having to follow the works of the law, which was what God said, do this, don't do this. If I don't have to worry about works for my salvation, I'm saved just by my faith alone, then my works doesn't matter. I don't have to do what God has told me to do. I don't have to quit sinning. I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want and know that I'm saved, right? That's where they took the truth and they ran way outside. And I believe that is the big problem that the majority of American culture faces today. We believe, well, if we're not saved by our works, but we're just saved by our faith, then how we live really doesn't impact whether we're saved or not. Whether we do what God says do or whether we do what God says don't do doesn't really matter. It makes no difference according to salvation. I'm saved by my belief in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's it. And that's what James addresses. And so since James addresses that, we need to pay very careful attention to that. Paul corrected those who are too far this way. James corrected those who are too far this way. This is what he says. <clears throat> James chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, right? For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is also able to save your souls. Does it sound like James cares about whether or not you sin? He says, rid yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. So does James think it matters that you stop sinning? It matters. Let's keep going. He said, the implanted word of God, the gospel, is able to save your souls. So what does he believe is able to save your souls? Your obedience to the law or the gospel message? The word, the implanted word, the gospel, faith. So James does believe faith is what saves you. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, what? Deceiving yourselves. And the, you need to ask, what does that mean? Deceiving yourself. Deceiving yourself about what? He's saying, you are, if you are a hearer of the gospel, but not a doer of the gospel, you have deceived yourself. You've made yourself believe something that's not true. You've deceived yourself. So he goes on. He goes on to explain what he's talking about. Now, I'm, we're going to skip. This is chapter 1. We're going to skip the rest of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. I'll give you a synopsis. He goes on to tell us what pure religion looks like. It looks like looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained from the world. He goes on to talk about don't show favoritism toward the rich. He says you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he says you should flee from all sin and to show mercy to each other when someone falls. Now, also, this is just a little tidbit of information. The whole, the whole letter of James is like a commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So you can take James 1 through 5, and you can go back and look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. You can look at what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, come back, look at what James is teaching, and he is explaining the exact same concepts that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. 
So he is doing like a little commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But this leads us into his longest, if not the longest section on one topic in his letter. So of all the different topics he addresses, most of them are real short, 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 short. This is one of the longest, if not the longest section that he takes time to address. And it's the balance between faith and works. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? You see that word there? Claims. That's the deceiving part. He says, what good is it if someone claims, meaning they don't actually have, they just claim to have? What is it, good is it if someone claims to have faith but they don't have works? Can such faith save him? And the answer is no, it can't. He goes on. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, imagine somebody that's a brother or sister in Christ that doesn't have enough clothing and food and it's getting cold, they don't have a jacket, they're poor. And one of you says to them, looks them in the face and says, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. Sounds very noble, doesn't it? Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But if you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Now, here's the concept that James is teaching. Just because you speak it doesn't make, make it true. Right? Just because you say it doesn't make it true. You can say be warm. You can say be well fed. But it doesn't make it them warm. And it doesn't make them well fed. And that's what he's saying. Just, just saying words and saying something's true doesn't make it true. He said, in the same way. In what kind of way? In the same way. In the same way that you can't speak something into, that's not true to be true into existence to your friend. Just because you say it doesn't make it true. In the same way, if it doesn't have faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. In the same way, you can claim to have faith. But just saying you have faith doesn't mean you have faith. That's, that's what the in the same way he's saying. In the same way that just because you said someone should be warm and well-fed didn't make them warm and well-fed, in the same way saying you have faith doesn't mean you actually have faith. That's where you are deceived. You have deceived yourself. He said, if faith does not have works... It is dead by itself. And then he goes on to give an example. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, then he says, show me your faith without works. Show me that you have faith with no works. I can't see it. How can I, I can't see that you have faith. You claim to have faith. But if you have no works, I, I don't see any faith. And he said, and I will show you my faith by my works. When you see how I live and how I treat and how I love my neighbor and how I show mercy and how I care for those who don't have enough clothing and don't have enough food, when you see me loving them, you will then see my faith that I believe the gospel message. But you who are living a sinful life, who don't, don't have any works to show, that you're, you're just using it as an excuse to live however you want, and then claim, well, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. He said, I don't see that faith. And that's not real faith. You have deceived yourself. That's why he goes on to say this. 
the very next verse. He said, you believe that God is one, aka you say you have faith, you believe the Shema, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you say that you believe the truth about God. He said, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. The demons don't have real faith. The demons don't have saving faith. They believe the truth. They, they believe the truth, but they don't, have, they don't have saving faith. Their sins are not atoned for. They don't live as if their sins are atoned for. They're not going around doing good for people. What are they doing? They're going around doing evil to people. And then he gets harsh, and I'm not calling any of y'all this. I know we have a lot of very smart people in here that are not stubborn. I'm not saying this, but James was very adamant. He said, senseless person. In other words, someone who is blinding themselves willingly to the truth. They know it's true. They know the truth that I can't just claim to have faith and claim to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that, and that He has atoned for my sins and yet live sinful life and never, never submit myself to Him and never live for Him. He said, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? In other words, if you claim to have faith, but you have no works, it won't do you any good. Your faith is useless. It, it, you won't be able to use it. You won't be able to, to claim anything at the end of your life. And then he goes to give examples. He said, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. So in other words, he said, Abraham could have said, yes, God, I believe you. I trust you. God said, okay, take your only son, bring him up on this mountain and sacrifice him to me. And, and, and Abraham could have said, yes, I, I believe you. And I believe because he did say the, the New Testament Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament said that Abraham believed that even if he slaughtered his son, Abraham believed that God could raise him back to, the, to life from the dead. That's what Abraham believed. Abraham had faith in God that even if he slaughtered his son, that God could raise his son back to life. Now, what good would it have done if Abraham said, yes, I believe, I have faith, but uh, not a chance that I'm going to take a risk of, of doing this because you might, not actually, um, you might not actually bless me. You might not actually uh, raise my son back to life. And, and so I, I don't really know. I'm not going to do it. Is that real faith? It's like saying, like any example, you see a chair, a rickety chair, looks like one of the legs is about to go. And you say, oh yeah, I believe that chair hold me. We'll take a seat. Mm -mm, no. Is, do you really believe that chair is going to hold you? <laughs> if you're not willing to act on it, do you really believe it? If you're not willing to act on it, do you really believe it? And so that's what he said. Abraham proved that he had faith by the works that he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so James teaches, what credited him his righteousness? His belief. And we know that his belief was real based on the fact that he did something about it. He worked. He showed evidence. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
Now you say, well, that's absolutely the opposite of what Paul said. But you got to keep in mind, they're talking to two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Paul's talking to a people who think they can earn justification by their works. James isn't talking to those people. The people that James is talking to is saying that my faith gives me an excuse to have no works. I don't have to have any works. I don't have to live the way God asked me to live. I'm completely fine without living any way God asked me to live. They don't believe that they're justified by their works. They believe that they're justified by a faith that has no works. Completely opposite of the people Paul was speaking to. Paul was speaking to a people who were trying to combine their faith with their works and saying that faith is not sufficient, that you must also have works or you're not really saved. So you got to keep in mind who they're talking to. So if you wanted to sum all of this chapter up, what James is saying, you could sum it up like this. If faith has no works, it's not faith. Period. If your faith does not evidence itself by works, it's not real faith. It goes on, in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. There is no faith apart from works. It's what's called a dead faith. Dead faith won't save you because it's not genuine faith. And you say, and, and so you may feel, well, that's not right. You may think, that's, that's not right. If, if I believe, then I shouldn't have to do what God has asked me to do. What? If I believe, I should be able to sin as much as I want to and not have to worry about being punished when I die. Huh? What do you believe? If you say, if I believe, I shouldn't have to turn from sin, what do you believe? Because what you believe is obviously not what I believe. What I believe is that God saw from the very beginning from Adam and Eve that all of us have sinned and deserve to spend eternity separated from him. That's what I believe. That all of us have sinned and deserve to spend eternity separated from him. Do you know why God will send people to hell? Is it because they wear Puma tennis shoes? No. Does God send people to hair because, I mean, hell, I was thinking about hair. I was thinking about my next analogy. Does God send people to hell because they have long hair or short, short hair? No. Can you think of any reason other than sin that God sends people to hell? No. The only reason God punishes humanity is because of sin. That's the only reason. We've separated ourselves from him because we sinned. Sin is the mortal enemy between us and God. Sin is the reason we're separated from God. And so what did he do? He loved us so much that he, now don't think this is blasphemy. Think about it for a second. He would rather die then send us to hell. He did. So that he would not have to send us to hell, he died for us. He'd rather die than send you to hell. 
Because he loves you. And he had to die to atone for your not hairstyle, not whatever, fill in the blank. He had to die to atone for your sinning against him. And so if you realize that and you realize what he's done for you, And the fact that from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, he's commanded us to turn from sin and that he has made a way for us to be forgiven of that sin. To then say that, oh yeah, I believe that. I believe we were separated from God because of sin. I believe that Jesus had to die because of sin. I believe that God had to leave his throne in heaven and come to earth and put on flesh and be beat and mocked and ridiculed because of my sin. I believe all that. Therefore, because I believe all that and I'm saved because I believe all that, therefore, I'm going to go sin it up. That makes no sense. If you still are in the mindset of, I can live how I want and sin how I want and it shouldn't affect anything that has to do with my allegiance to God and faith in God and and to know that I'll be forgiven when I die, I should be able to live however I want. You have not grasped the gospel. You don't get it. And so that's what James has to correct. Those of us, and I, I, I mean, I grew up in America. I think everybody here grew up in America. I think we probably all have the same story. All of us, when we were taught that we were saved by grace through faith alone, all of us, tended to lean more towards well then God doesn't want me to do this but he's not going to punish me for it God doesn't want me to do this but I do I don't think any of us leaned over this way and said you know what I really think I need to start following the Mosaic law and make sure I never sin no we live in America every time you turn on the TV every time you do anything go anywhere they're always encouraging you to sin And we were saved from that. We were saved from that. God saved us from that. God saved us from the consequences of our sin. And that's why it's so important that we must understand what James is trying to teach us. If you think that saying Jesus is your Lord, because that's what it means. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9, 10. For one confesses with the mouth, resulting in, one believes in the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. If you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, Lord, meaning I obey him, Savior, meaning I'm depending on him to save me, Saying Jesus is my Lord and Savior, just like saying be warm and be well fed, if you don't actually do it, it's not real. And that's where I have this big problem with this whole speak, this whole name it and claim it. You got you to gotta claim it. You got to say, I am healthy. I am, I do not have cancer. I da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You don't claim it. You petition and ask God for it. God's the one that takes your cancer away. God's the one that gives you what you need. 
and you don't take his place. But saying Jesus is my Lord and Savior does not make him your Lord and Savior. If it's not real. If it's not real. Now, flip side of that, because I don't want you walking out of here thinking that you're not saved. Flip side of that, you're absolutely saved simply by God's grace through that faith. Period. Those works, they don't add to your salvation. Those works, they don't make you justified through those works. But I'm just trying to paint the difference between someone who knows and believes they're saved by faith and loves God and someone who claims to be saved by faith and claims that God is their Lord, Jesus is their Lord, and doesn't. That's the difference. And that's the difference that James was trying to address. God is not a get-out-of-hell free card. He's not something you can just stick in your pocket and then cash in on when you die. He's someone you have to love today. He's someone you have to love. And anybody you love, you're not going to treat them that way. I mean, can you imagine after me and Lindsay walked down the aisle and we were married? And then I said, okay, we're married. I got the card in my back pocket. Now I can treat her however I want because I was told once we're married, we're married. So I, I could kick her out of the house. Tell her to go fend for herself. No, of course not. That doesn't make any sense. And that's the same thing with this right here. There's freedom in knowing that you're saved. There's freedom in knowing that you're eternally secure. And that it's not based on your works. There's a freedom in that. And I hope you know that freedom. But you can't fake it. You can't use God. Just saying it doesn't make it true. Meaning it makes it true. You got to mean it. And that's the difference. I don't ever want to paint a picture that if you say this right prayer, if you do this right thing, that boom, that's it. You don't have to worry about anything from now on. I want to paint the only picture that I see in the scripture. The only picture is you've got to choose to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You got to mean it. You got to really love him. And he loves you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. Well, I don't know how much hope I gave y'all. All scriptures meant for to give you hope. <laughs> but I hope that you can, I hope, my hope was for you to get a good grasp of what it means to be saved by faith. It's not earned by works, but then again, if there's no evidence that is actually real, that doesn't do you any good either. It has to be real, genuine faith. My hope was you, for you to get a good grasp on that and then to be able to walk out of here today and say to yourself, I know, I know my faith is real. I know I'm not faking it. I know I'm not just trying to use God so that I can live for me. I love God. I want to live for Him. And I know I don't have to achieve some level or standard of obedience to the law in order to be saved. I know I'm saved right now. My hope is that you can walk out of here with an assurance of your own salvation, knowing that you're not trying to earn it, 
and that you haven't deceived yourself into believing you have faith when you don't. Is your faith real? Because if it's real, it's going to show by the way you live. It will. If your faith is real, it will show by how you live. If y'all would please stand and join us for our closing song. Well, Merry Christmas. Just to sum up, we are not saved by works, but if there are no works, I can't say you're saved. Saying Jesus is Lord doesn't mean he is. You just have to make a decision. You just have to make a choice. Are you going to submit to him or not? Do you want him or not? Do you love him or not? And I have found something in common. Every single person that says that they love God and means it. I see works. I see evidence. I do. Do you love him? Because if you do, you, you won't be able to help yourself. You'll want to do what he wants you to do. You'll want to. You'll lay down at night and be upset with yourself because you feel like you disappointed him or you, you sinned or you did something wrong. You have a conscience because you love him. And that evidences itself by the way you live. He loves you. I love y'all. And I hope that you have a, hopefully, if not, please ask me any questions you have. But I hope you have a good grasp and understanding of that concept. That you can be free and sure and secure that you are saved. That you don't have to attain a certain level of goodness to be saved. That you know you're saved. And that you know it's real. Not that you've just been faking it. I just want you to walk out of here knowing you are saved. I know I am, and I am so thankful. I also know I don't deserve to be, but I am so thankful that I am. And we can be thankful after Thanksgiving. It's okay. And Mary, leading up to Merry Christmas. Let's, let's, let's pray together. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, we're thankful that we don't have to earn our salvation, that you have done everything for us. But Father, we also understand that you desire genuine relationships with us you desire for us to be your children and for you to be our father you don't desire for us to just be about us and ourselves and, and just look to you for a way to not get punished but for what we all rightly deserve but that you are looking for a family and so if we would just submit ourselves to you as our father if we would just love you and embrace you that's all you want that's all you're asking for and so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your amazing love for us. Father, give us a hope for that future and give us assurance that, uh, that we are saved, that we, we, we mean it when we, we say we love you and that we have been changed by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.